0: Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the UCLA Herb School of Music. This is your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson, and welcome to our last episode. Ah, oh, it is bittersweet. It's been a great 78 episodes over these four years. You'll be able to hear this podcast, the past two podcasts, and additional podcasts in Creative Innovators with me Gigi Johnson in your favorite podcast services. I'll tell you more in the back end, but please enjoy this last podcast with Jack Conti. Jack Conti from both Pamplemousse and Patreon just was charming and fabulous talking about how he's been both a creator as well as a kind of systems innovator, tech geek, space geek, and said a couple of my favorite quotes, which I'll let you find in here. But one of them was, innovation is messy. Totally agree. Totally appreciate that. And that in many ways is business is because there are two million weirdos just like you. Love that quote. And I'm one of those weirdos. Please enjoy this highly dynamic and charming podcast interview. Well, Jack, you are among the more famous people we've had on the podcast. We have a wide variety of cast of characters, but you have fame both in the tech sphere and in the music sphere. And, and I would love to hear your journey story a bit, but I, I would love to hear how you are, before we get started here, how you balance being a musician and running a not small tech company.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> um, I I haven't always been good at it. Um, in fact, the first uh, the first while in the business, I was not taking a salary as CEO. Instead, I I wanted to make my living as a as a musician using the platform, and uh, I felt like that was an important proof point. And you know, there's there's a. a some good benefits of that, too, in terms of dog fooding your own product and making sure that it works and having your own butt on the line if things don't work. Um, so that's what I did the first few years. And the next few years, um, I basically uh, took, started taking a salary as, as CEO and then was unable to keep up um, music. And so I basically stopped working on music for maybe three to four years. My output basically went down to zero. Which was really hard on me personally, because I honestly I feel like i'm I'm on earth to to make music and and that's a big part of who I am and, and where my heart is, and so um, that was really tough. But then, about three years ago, I started a funk band with my buddy, and I fly down to l a once a month. We meet on a Saturday or Sunday. we record four songs. Then we, uh, initially we started doing all the editing and post-production ourselves, but slowly as it's become a profitable business, uh, we've hired a team and now I've got about 15 or 20 contractors who basically help do all the post-production workflows and everything. So I get to just basically fly down to LA once a month, go to the studio, record four songs. They come out one a week on YouTube. Um, and then on Spotify and everywhere else. Um, and then we replicated that model too with my other band, Pomplamoose, which is my band with my wife. So now Pomplamoose does the same thing. I fly down once a month, we do four songs and those come out. So now I'm coming out with a hundred songs a year. Um, wow. hundred music videos <laughs> a year.
0: That is such um, a different model than what you guys <laughs> were doing before.
1: It's so different, but, but we had to change our, I mean, the options were don't come out with music. Or completely redesign our creative process so that we can continue to be musicians and have fun, and so I can continue to be involved, and uh, and so we did. We completely redesigned our creative process, and uh, and that allows me to essentially spend maybe two days a month, you know, on a Saturday and a Sunday recording one day for Pomplamoose, one day for Scary Pockets. And then I have a couple like operations meetings during the week with the teams, Um, you know, video and audio. And, and my wife, you know, runs uh, Pomplamoose and my partner in crime on Scary Pockets runs Scary Pockets, but I still come to some of those meetings and, you know, offer some input and feedback, but mostly the teams are running with those at this point. So I I get to do the fun part. I get to come down to a studio and record and, and, you know, be a creator on YouTube, which is a blast.
0: So who's, Who's writing? Because music doesn't magically just show up when you walk into the studio.
1: Yeah. So uh, a couple things. One, Scary Pockets mostly does uh, does covers, okay. and um, we do actually come out with a, quite a bit of original music, like one or two albums a year um, of of original uh, uh, material, which we write in the studio, day of, no preparation. Wow. We just. Write and record right there as a band, um, and that's very fun. Uh, but then, Pomplious, my wife, does the writing for Um I used to be more involved in the writing process, but i i I can't do I can't do that anymore. So she does most of the writing, almost all the writing. Um, and uh, and yeah, when we get to the studio, now we have also like we've gotten better at like delegating and building the team. So there's like a pre-production crew that will like come out with demos and, and, you know, we give feedback on the demos and talk about how things are flowing and Natalie's running that as well. So by the time we get to the studio, we have some parts that we can, you know, record and, and we do a lot of the arranging uh, honestly in the studio. Um, But, but, you know, we're, we're, we're building some complexity around it over time, which is a joy. Actually, it's really fun to iterate on that process over time.
0: So you've become a machine. <laughs> no, but you've become a creative machine where you've been able to really create. I'm, I'm assuming a video process too, not just audio, because you're creating content you're going to go into
1: YouTube. Yeah, it's, it, that's an interesting word choice. And I myself am obsessed with that. And actually I'm making a little film, not a little film, maybe a 30 or 40 minute film about a creator who, um. I have witnessed and learned from over the last few years and I've watched them build a machine. It's now a company, they have an office space, they have a hundred employees um, and they've turned from YouTube creator into what is now just inarguably a media company. Um, and so, I, you know, Palm Luce has been learning from that as well and, and looking at that. And so we're trying, you know, Palm Luce actually now looks a lot like a media company. Um, we make media And we have subscription revenue from that media and we have ad revenue from that media and we have different lines of business and we have, you know, contractors and we have employees and it is kind of like a media company. There is an operation and a system around it. So it is. Yeah, it's not entirely mechanical. It's still very creative, but a lot of the process has been mechanized.
0: Now does that pull from your experiences also then in growing, seeding and launching a company that becomes the machine under so many other creators? I mean, it sounds like there's been great cross-pollination between what you've built on the Patreon side and what you've now built on the creative side.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this is a love of mine. That that I've I've only learned about, you know, in the last 7 years is like uh, scaling processes and systems and, and, um, you know, thinking about how to do that and, uh, and, uh, and how to, you know, do it with heart. Cause I think that's the hard part, you mm-hmm. know? <laughs> but, um, but yes, a lot of the stuff that, you know, certainly I've learned at, at Patreon in scaling a technology company. Um, I'm now completely applying those processes, you know, to Pomplamoose and Scary Pockets. you know, everything from literally my last, Call that ended at two PM was a, was a monthly finance review for Pompilus, and so we run our monthly finance review the same exact way that Patreon runs its monthly finance reviews. You know, we look at our books, we ask similar questions, we look at our lines of revenue, we look at our expenses, we look at how we're trending on net income. We make sure that we're you know investing in the in the areas of the business that are working, and we make sure that we're you know. Uh, letting go and making hard choices around areas of the business that, that aren't working. Um, and so, yeah, there's been a lot of learning and pulling from each that kind of informs and influences the other. And that's been so, oh gosh, that's been so fun. I love like, that part Your
0: face lights up. It's the benefit actually doing this with a video recording. <laughs> I can see your face light up on this yeah. <laughs> as to how this, this excites you. Uh, so I'm going to take you backwards. And I, I know okay. that, that many people have talked to you and written about your, your, uh, your, your story of how you got started and how actually your, your two main cohorts in crime are actually your Stanford cohorts in crime. Uh, But when you were at Stanford, uh, you were both music and a bit of tech.
1: So my uh, yes, my major was uh, music widely. And then I had two areas of focus. One was composition and the other was music science and technology. So composition was like, I mean, you know, Theory, classical theory, jazz theory, writing for symphony orchestra, writing for big band, and then the music si- science and technology por- portion of it was through the Karma Department, CCRMA, Center for Computer Research Music and Acoustics, and that was, you know, um, everything from building hardware synthesizers to algorithmic composition um, to, uh, I mean, recording and engineering, you name it.
0: How? Why? I mean, some, most people I know start from one part of that journey or the other, right? So that they're a creative and they realize under the hood, they enjoy the technology side, or they're a technologist who plays music on the side and then ends up with music being a big part of their lives. Stanford is not necessarily a place that usually beckons to to music composers, what was the journey before that, if you don't mind me getting parental and
1: asking the earlier question? No, it's it's fine. I, I mean, yeah, I wish there was like a really great answer around this. I don't think there is. I I was a good student. I really cared about school. I've always worked like super hard, you know, in my life. I just, I feel like I, even through school, I've, I've, I've always had this feeling like looking around the classroom and feeling like I wasn't the smartest kid in the class. And so I had to work twice as hard as everyone else just to kind of keep up, just to, not to get ahead, just to, just to stay there, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I, I worked really hard in school and I did well. And, um, and uh, I, I ended up wanting to, I fell in love with physics when I was in high school. I had an amazing physics teacher named Tucker Hyatt, and he just was so influential, um, on me. And, uh, I, I fell in love with science, uh, in his classes and I got to college and I wanted to be a physics major. Um, and I remember, you know, the first couple years of college, you know, doing the whole, doing that whole track and, A couple years in, I I remember sitting in a lecture hall and like the passion and enthusiasm of the teacher relative to Tucker was, you know, it was just, it was not there, it was gone. It was like they had fallen out of love with their field and I'm sure they hadn't. I'm sure I was just in a mood and it was a bad day or they were having a bad day or whatever it was. But I remember looking up that day and feeling like this fire I think had more to do with that teacher and their worldview and, and how just wonderful that teacher was than it did the subject itself. I still actually am a total science nerd. I love physics. I love astronomy. I love, um, I love science in general, but, um, but it was that at that moment where I kind of had that, what at the time was a very depressing realization that I was going to be a musician. Um, that was like, not an easy choice. That was a very sad moment in my life. My, my uncle, I mean, I wish it was like a happy thing, but I was just, I was like, well, I'm going to play music and I have no idea how I'm going to make money from that. Like, I'm just, I know I need to do this because it's what I care about and it's what I'm passionate about, but I'm probably, I felt like I was committing to a life of not earning money and um, that, and me.
0: physics was going to make you a lot of money.
1: Well, I figured like, hey, with a degree in science, like, there's a lot of options. Somebody will hire right? you. Somebody <laughs> will. somebody's going to hire me for something. Um, versus, like, if I'm a musician, I was thinking, oh God, I don't know, I don't know that I'm going to be able, I don't know what I'm going to do. Because um, I I thought, well, if I'm, uh, yeah, I thought if I'm, you know, if I if I, what are the chances that I'm going to like. Make music that everybody wants to hear. And like, this is before YouTube. This is before the internet. This is like before it was possible to be a full time creator, which mm-hmm. now, you know, 15 years later, it's just a matter of hard work and dedication, like any other thing. But it wasn't that way. And
0: finding fans. And finding fans.
1: Finding fans. But again, even finding fans has been, there are like systems around that now. And mm-hmm. like, you can, you can, like, again, if you're dedicated enough, you can iterate toward product market fit on the technology side or on the music side right like you can you can find your audience the the internet is full of weirdos you know if you're one in a thousand if you're really weird if let's say you're really really weird you have really bizarre taste. well there's two billion people online so there's two million weirdos just like you who would probably love your music even if it's really bizarre um so you know that didn't exist of uh, you know 15 years ago and it's just different world now. So yeah, it was was, harder to
0: find the weirdos. They were out there, but they weren't in the same place you were going to be.
1: They weren't connected.
0: So, so graduating from Stanford. Yeah. You then, oh, have you gone back to tell Tucker Hyatt that he inspired you?
1: I hang with Tucker probably like once a month at this point. So he's, he's
0: in NorCal too.
1: Yeah. We're good buddies.
0: Okay. Not everyone's good buddies with their high school uh, physics teacher.
1: I know it's bizarre, but we like <laughs> we we uh, we both have a a love of Costco uh, pizza, so we go to Costco and eat pizza together.
0: <laughs> oh like no! A... <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> okay,
0: so you graduate from Stanford. Yeah. You're in NorCal, hotbed of hotbed of music. Oh, can be. Yeah. And then you started creating.
1: Yes start coming in with uh with well I've, first i i worked on an album i was i got a job i mean if we're really going back after graduation i got a job as an sat tutor because oh, wow. i didn't know what i was going to do um but i was good at math and so i was tutoring kids in math um and uh trying to figure out how to make a living as a musician and eventually i got hooked up with a guy who was um, uh, through a, a mutual friend who started hiring me for um, like corporate background music type gigs, and so that's where I really honed my music engineering, mixing, and production chops is in like doing corporate background music and just learning about equalization and compressors and making things sound good. Um, and uh, and then at some point, I, I landed another job doing uh, like I was basically an in-house composer for Google for doing more corporate background music for like wow. in-house videos, wow. um, as a contractor, like I was an employee. I just, there was a person who worked there and just started hiring me as a freelancer to do music, uh, for their videos. And, and then at one point I remember that boss, uh, my boss there, uh, the person who I was working for to, to make music, um, said like, Hey, I need, I need you to do this thing and have it done by tomorrow. And I was like, Oh, I, I can't do that. Cause I have this SAT, like I have students this afternoon. And she was like, Jack, do you want to be a, a math teacher or do you want to be a musician? And I was like, oh, I want to be a musician. <laughs> and, um, do, that's doing Google
0: I, corporate background music.
1: No, not doing Google corporate background music, but what's interesting about that, it was, it, it was, um, it was close enough to what I wanted to do that I was able to develop my skill sets in production and engineering and mixing and all the things that allowed me to write and record my own music that you know made it sound better. And so I I learned a lot doing those things that that made it um, kind of work for me uh, you know as a as a musician. So I, I I mean she was right. I wanted to spend more time doing that stuff and less time teaching math. And that's when I kind of dropped that gig. And and through all this I was you know, I was writing songs and making music and making albums and putting them out um, and starting to find my audience on YouTube. That's when I started uploading videos to YouTube.
0: What type of audience walked in the door first? Um, Weirdos like us. No. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, we, I mean, for sure, weirdos. It's like the people who are using YouTube, like in 2007, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was just after the Google acquisition and very very early on, very early YouTube days, um, I had made an album that I was really proud of. And so I didn't start posting on YouTube to find an audience. I started posting on YouTube because I saw these people who were doing really well on YouTube. And so I started posting what I thought were advertisements on YouTube to try and send people to my MySpace page. Because I had my album on MySpace.
0: Back in the day.
1: Back, in, Back the day. in the day. Yeah. Uploaded my album MySpace. I was I wanted more folks to listen to that album. So I uploaded these videos to YouTube that were just short little snippets, like maybe a two-minute snippet of me just messing around in my studio and putting a song together. I would like do it start to finish in like 48 hours. I'd make a little thing, a little original song that I was hoping would attract people and get them to check out my fully produced album over there that I spent six months on, you know. And what ended up happening was I would make these little, you know, videos with music. And and then I'd say, go check out my full album at myspace.com slash Jack Conti. And nobody went to my MySpace page. Everybody started in the comments section of the YouTube videos. Everybody started saying like, hey, where can I get the audio file for this, for this song? And I was like, no, 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 that's not the song you want. The song you want is over here. That's the good stuff. And look, I did that for probably a year and I finally realized nobody cares about this record. Everybody wants these quick little fun things that I'm making and putting on YouTube. And so I started releasing those as audio tracks using a link release system called E-Junkie, which I cobbled together you know, a, a website for and was able to kind of sell an MP3 for a dollar. Um, and, and that's when I started actually making money from my original music.
0: And a lot of the story for a lot of people is I built this tool (laughs) and it helped me. And then I went to, but you kept moving as a musician as well. And then working with your now wife.
1: Yes. So, so about a year later in 2008, Natalie and I formed Pomplamoose in the summer of 2008 and our first video was actually uploaded to my YouTube channel because we didn't have a band. We just did a collab together. You know, we're thinking, ah, let's, let's have a Jack and Natalie song. And actually when we first did it, we were thinking I'll produce Natalie's song. But then by the time it came out, it was clearly a collaboration and clearly was the, you know, was the sum of, of two, two parts. And, um, and so we decided to, to call it something. And we, Natalie's friend had just gotten back from Europe and thought pomplamoose was a hilarious word. So we bought pomplamoose.com and decided to call the band pomplamoose. And that was it. Um, because grapefruit
0: just sounded like an interesting name.
1: Cause it just sounds funny.
0: It just sounds yeah. funny. That's it. So you guys uh, continued on YouTube, continued to, to have um, iTunes downloads, continued to build your brand, continued to play with videos And what tripped you over the wire though? I know it's been talked about a lot more on a lot of other places to then say Patreon is the direction to
1: go. Ah, so, okay. So that was now the formation of Pomplamoose was 2008. Patreon didn't start until 2013. So there's, there's a lot in that chunk there, but, um, the long and short of it is, you know, Pomplamoose ended up doing quite well, um, and finding, fit, you know, and, um, and actually making, making quite a bit of money. I mean, we bought a house off of our MP3 sales and built a little recording studio and, um, that was in 2010. And then Natalie started to focus on her solo career. And so she signed a record deal with Warner and went off to, to, uh, tour the world. And, um, she literally did a a world tour for her, for her solo record and her solo project. And, during those six months, I was at home alone, <laughs> and um, and so I started. I was getting really into electronic music at the time, and listening to a lot of. Uh, I was just obsessed with semi modular synthesis, and uh, in particular, I felt like um, folks in the field of electronic dance music were making, uh, were designing synthesizers that were more complex and more beautiful than synthesizers I'd ever heard in my life. They were more dynamic and, you know, uh, this is during like the sort of talking bass era, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is still happening. But I was just, I was stunned by those sounds and how organic they were and how um, complex and and just rich they were. And so I really wanted to learn how to make um, sound design like that. And so I spent two years from 2011 to 2013 going really deep on semi-modular synthesis and sound design. Um, and, uh, and that eventually became videos that were uh, very technological. So I, I built this one uh, w- with, with a partner. I built this one um, solenoid hand. It was basically like linear actuators that would, um, that would press a launch pad which is a MIDI controller. Mm -hmm. And it was almost, I almost did it as a joke because the linear actuators were controlled by MIDI. And so they were like, it was a MIDI controlled MIDI controller. And it was this weird loop thing. I thought it was gonna be a joke. It it actually was, it ended up doing quite well. It was a very cool thing to watch this robotic hand play a MIDI controller. Um, And so that video started to take off. Natalie's out by herself, alone. I'm getting really into electronic music. I've now got four songs that I'm really excited about. One of them I'm super excited about. I start to build a music video for this one song, and uh, I just went really deep on this one video. I, I got lost in the rabbit hole. I think that it, maybe if there's a if there's like a, a, recurring, a, lesson, theme. a recurring theme, recurring <laughs> theme it's just I'll rabbit hole on something and go really, really deep. So I went really deep on this video. I ended up working with one guy who built a 3D printed hexapod robot. Second guy who built a animatronic head, both from scratch. Um, I built a replica of Millennium Falcon cockpit behind me for this, for this set. Um, I spent three months, I drained my savings account. I built these rotating elevators. I I framed a wall in my studio and, and, and built the Millennium Falcon against this wall. I mean, I, 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 Looking back on it, it was crazy. Like I I, I don't know what I was expecting to happen, but but I, I went all out on this video. I filmed the whole process, um, ended up maxing out two credit cards. And coming out of this process, that's when I started thinking about the fact that I wasn't gonna make money from all of this work. And that I was gonna put out something on the web that was gonna reach a million people, because that's what my videos were getting when I would upload them. It was like, okay, I'm gonna put something out, I'm making a piece of art. My fans are going to go nuts about it. Like I know they're going to go nuts because they're going to see me going crazy in my studio by myself. They're going to be rooting for me. They're going to know I put my whole soul into this video and I'm going to get paid less than $200 for this video. And, you know, in ad revenue. And the kind of sinking, like the feeling was, it's hard to even describe it. It was horror. It was disgust, not just for myself. It was disgust knowing that these are the systems that we humans as a species have designed and deployed globally as a mechanism for compensating creators for their output. Mm -hmm. And, And that was like horrific to me, that like knowing that there were so many people just like me giving their everything to their art and putting it, uploading it onto a website and having all of the value, the energy, the enthusiasm, the comments, the likes, the engagement, the passion, All of that energy was winding up in Google's market cap instead of in the pockets of the creators who brought the internet to life. Um, and, and that was this kind of horrible realization that essentially led to me thinking there's gotta be a better way here. There's gotta be a system where creators are the the discrepancy between what a creator is worth and what a creator gets paid is closed. We have to close that gap. And, um, I sat down one Sunday afternoon, I sketched out this idea on 14 sheets of printer paper. The idea was like, hey, when my, when my fans get involved in something, they really value it. Like they, they really value it with their, with their wallets. And uh, it's different than when advertisers work with me. When advertisers work with me, they don't care about me. You know, I, th- th- When an advertiser is involved, it's, they don't care. They just care about eyeballs. But when my fans get involved, they will do anything you know, they're loyal. And um, so that was the idea.
0: But also through YouTube and and other platforms, it's also, there's a disconnect so you can't even see them and they can't see you either. So this is really making that bridge, which also other people have stepped into that bridge since, but
1: that bridge was one of the places to hook as well. Right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the strength of connection um, is really an important thing. Um, And, you know, anything that you can do to strengthen that connection, to deepen that engagement, I think, is is really important for musicians. What makes that hard, this is a whole separate conversation, a separate problem, is some musicians actually actively fight that and don't want that, right? They just want their fans to love their work, not to love them as people. And, yeah, again, that's a whole conversation there. Um, but, um it's really, the, it's really a
0: fourth wall question, right? That I want to be behind a screen or I want to be actually in direct connection. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's an interesting question of this time because now so many people, this is their platform, that they're in a direct-to-fan live stream experience, which I'm kind of cutting ahead to, but we'll, we'll loop backwards. Um, sure. But you know, the, luckily, so many different platforms have been in place, including Patreon, to make that direct connect. So when things have gotten scrambled, there's another way to make that connection.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that that was, I mean, that was the thinking. Um, It was when there's a direct relationship between the fan and the creator, between the creator and the fan. It ends up working out for the fans better. It ends up working out for the creators better. Um, So you took those 14
0: sheets of printer paper and what... Back to Stanford land or went back to Stanford connections, right? When you, when you tap with Sam on the shoulder and said, this is what I want to do.
1: Yep. I called up Sam. Um, and he was actually at the time he was launching a different website. (laughs) I know you're busy
0: doing something else, but I would like to play with you.
1: (laughs) That was exactly what it was. And, uh, and he was like, okay, well, I'm busy launching this thing. He was like, why don't we meet next week after my launch? And I said, great. And so we, the following week we met at a little coffee shop in San Francisco and I pitched him this idea. I showed him the drawings, you know, showed him the whole thing. And he just, he exploded. I mean, he got it like that. He got it. He was following a bunch of creators online and loved creators and would, you know, listen to them on Spotify and, um, and would follow them on YouTube. And so he got, he got it instantly and he actually started, he started building it that night. Um, is when he started coding it, and and we exchanged some emails, and um, and that was the beginning of Patreon.
0: So innovating in music tends to not be a smooth journey. What were the biggest unanticipated hiccups in your Patreon launch?
1: Yeah, I think innovating in anything isn't a smooth journey. <laughs> I, I think um, I, I I heard somebody say recently. Uh, that like innovation is like the opposite of efficiency. It was something like that which resonated so hard with me because innovation is messy. Um, when you're like building something new, it's mostly failure, which I know is almost trite to say. And there's the whole fail fast thing in Silicon Valley and blah blah blah. But like it, it, it it's it's trite because it is at its in. Deeply, deeply, it is true. <laughs> um, and like, it's, it's mostly things not working, ideas not connecting, you know, um, trying something that just is off and then ditching it and the pain of having to ditch something that, you know, it, so it's most, mostly that. Um, and some of those missteps, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a bunch. Um, once we kind of had wireframes, uh, we had a list of 40 creators that I thought would be awesome on Patreon. And I was really excited to have them, you know, use Patreon. And we contacted all of them, and all of them said no. All of a sudden, all of them said no, no, no. That thank you, but I, I that's I, that's not for me. I wouldn't want that. Um, and that was like I was kind of disappointed. I was also, uh, yeah. I remember talking to some other people who who would try to. They said they would try to help get some creators to be excited about it too, and they didn't have luck either. But we were we kind of decided to go for it anyway, um, because I had confidence that if I went up and did this, my fans would support me, and I just knew it would work, and like even if it just worked for me like i was I was cool with that you know i I just wanted to not get paid two hundred dollars a month. I wanted to get paid what I was worth, and so I knew it would work for me, even if other creators didn't want to do it. so we did it anyway that's one that's one thing is like literally pitching this idea to forty people who said no um, another. Another, you know, just messy thing is the last 34 hours before launching Patreon, literally before going live with the website. Um, the website was live, but obviously no one knew about it or was going to it. But we, we posted the website, we made it live. And then what, what caused that first wave of traffic to patreon.com was I uploaded the music video? This robot music video that I had spent three months making, and at the end of that music video, I put a little vlog where I said, "Hey, everybody, go check out this new website that I'm making with my buddy called Patreon, and let's see if this works. I think it could help a lot of creative people. Let's, you know, come on, come on this journey with me." Um, and uh, that last 34 hours before uploading the video was a total scramble i i i think i i'm just not a very good project manager or whatever it is but i was just i was up for 34 straight hours i'd been up since 6 a.m the day before i was making i think i made like four different videos like i made my patreon video i finished the robot music video um i made the main patreon video for how to what patreon is which my my Wife ended up helping me make it the last minute because I was totally maxed out Um, Plus I had to finish my record because my record was coming out the same day. All of this was kind of Cobbled up together on one big launch and it was just insane so, you know, there's that that was pretty wild and then of course as soon as we launched all these all my fans just you know rushed to patreon to support me and um because they saw this music video and it totally blew their minds and they wanted to help you know and and so um so they did and it, it you know cor- it's a classic story it crashed the servers sam had to spin up a new box because it was just a huge spike in traffic and more than we anticipated i mean all the kind of classic things that you hear when you kind of just really rage into product market fit you know and um So that was, that was a wild moment as well. And, and very, very messy. Like, you know, we were not strategic about it at all. When we launched Patreon, Sam launched Patreon without having built payments. So we launched on May 7th. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's a, that's a kind of a big hole.
1: We launched on May 7th. He hadn't written the logic for payments yet. So he had 23 days to write the logic for payments before we process cards on the first of the next month like and it's there's just so many little things like that like it was just it was wild
0: so how different is patreon now
1: i mean it's it's night and day right it's it's funny because to me it feels like a huge company <laughs> you know like i i remember the days where patreon was me and sam and you know tyler was our first employee and so me sam and tyler for a couple months just like working out of our kitchens and meeting up in you know, San Francisco, every once in a while at a coffee shop. And so to have like 200 teammates and global offices and, you know, systems and processes and managers and, you know, HR protocol, like it, it feels enormous to me, you know, it feels like just like a huge company. And then, of course, we bring in operators, you know, who have been at thousand person companies and five thousand person companies, and they can't believe, you know, they can't believe how much we haven't figured out yet. Right. They're like, oh, my gosh, how come you haven't done this yet? What about this? And What about this HR system? Why isn't any of this in place yet? And, you know, from my perspective, uh, you know, we're we're just building something from scratch. (laughs) You know, we're like we're flying by the seat of our pants here. So. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question, but it's... Oh,
0: no, definitely, because because I was then going to bridge to the... And then you had to send them all home to work from home yes. after having built this custom-built creation, almost like you've got your video with the Millionaire Felton, all custom-built, and I have this custom-built company, and now you're having to not pivot but pivot to still make all this available while all of your customers were going through massive life changes. How did that happen? How did that
1: work? Yeah, that, that was just, again, another messy hard moment where like we were watching what was happening around us. And um, you know, one by one, more and more companies started to send employees home. And I think Patreon, we weren't like the first company to do it. I think Twitter was the first company to do it. Um, but we were in that first wave, you know, within that first week of companies, that's just basically said, okay, everybody, if you want to work from home, work from home, you do not have to come into the office. And then a little while later, we basically shut the office and we said, okay, you can't come into the office. Um, and then we had to figure out how to work together as a remote team. Um, and yeah, that, that was just more learning and, and figuring things out. And, um, I think we've, we've stayed very productive. Um, you know, the company is executing very well and we've, we hit all our you know goals, uh, you know, over the last couple months. And that's been amazing to see the team rally and step up and have the grit and the tenacity to get through something like this. It's not easy on people. You know, there's a lot of, it's really tough, you know, a lot, a lot of Folks at, at Patreon, like who are parents, are having to figure out, you know, having kids at home and being on Zoom with kids in the background and schools closed, and so now they're, you know, kids are home with them, and that's incredibly difficult. And um, you know, inter- not everybody has a great internet connection, so there's just been like, honestly, a lot of the little logistics have been difficult. But but again, the team's really rallied, and I'm I'm really proud of the folks at Patreon. I think they've done an amazing job coping and and figuring out how to make it work given these new circumstances.
0: And we're talking now in June, I know in in March of 2020, you guys in your blog talked about the actual uplift in people who were both coming to the platform for the first time and fans coming to support the creators. Um, Has that continued to lift since March or any other kind of ahas or new findings from that?
1: Yes. I mean, yes, it has. It's been the fastest moment of growth for Patreon in our history as a company. And I think it's basically because, you know, a few things have happened. Um, If you just, I mean, honestly, if you just the framework that you use for examining the situation is the lines of revenue in a creative business, right? What are the lines of revenue in a creative business? There's like merchandise, there's ad revenue, there's live and touring. Um, You know, those are some of the main lines. And then there's licensing and royalties and, and some other things. But even with just those, with just that handful, um, you know, live, forget it, like Live Nation canceled all touring, AG canceled all global touring. So, you know, there are musicians that were looking forward to hundreds of thousands of dollars of touring revenue over the course of a year, evaporated, you know, in two weeks, gone, no more touring income. Okay, now they have to figure out what are they gonna do about that? and um, And what are the alternatives? Mm. Um, but you can go revenue line by revenue line. Okay. What about ad revenue? Well, we entered a global recession because of, you know, COVID. And so companies, you know, um, slashed their sales and marketing budgets, which means they, they were flooding the market with fewer advertisements. Um, which means, you know, the, the, the CPMs for creators took a haircut, um, which is kind of the, you know, the, the, The cost per meal or, you know, how much, how much someone will pay for a thousand impressions, Um, you know, because companies just weren't advertising as much that metric took a hit. And so creators were seeing, I saw one database that showed creators were taking hit anywhere from 20 to 30% in terms Mm -hmm. of ad revenue. And so now they need to look for alternatives. And then you can go revenue line by revenue line. Okay, what about events? What about merchandise? What about merchandise sold from live events? Same thing, like all gone. So like every line of business for creators, you know, has disappeared except for subscription revenue from fans, mm-hmm. which has not only remained stable, it's it's actually gone through quite a bump, an, an uptick. Um, because I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out what can I do to help and, mm-hmm. like, supporting a creator is a really easy way to help, you know, to do something today that that is helpful and, and makes sense. And so a lot of patrons just literally upped their pledge to creators. Um, and a lot of creators went to their patrons and said, hey, everybody, I can't tour. I can't sell merchandise at conventions. I can't do my live events. My ad revenue has gone down, and I need you to step up. And fans did. Um, so, yeah, Patreon has seen – not only a, just a ton of creators start to launch on the platform because their revenue lines have disappeared, um, but we've also seen uh, fans really step up to the challenge to make sure that creators can maintain their businesses through such a tough economic period.
0: And new lines of revenue with live streams or, I mean, in many ways there were folks who were staying there ready for live streams for a long time and were Kind of ready and waiting, and other people who are saying what 's this live stream thing um, and then can I do a VIP end of that, or can I have a custom live stream or and so you guys were in a good position to be a foothold there as well
1: yes um, I mean it 's one of those things you know everybody talks about covid and and this pandemic accelerating certain uh, behaviors and I think one of them has been just the adoption of, you know, remote technology and, um, and digital platforms. And uh, as, the, as the kind of primary tool for connection in a time when we're really disconnected. Um, and so the, the platforms that are offering connection, you know, are seeing this, this huge boost. Um, and one of those ways to do that is, is live streaming. And I think particularly for musicians, the idea of playing a show you know, but, but doing it for your fans over, over a live stream is obvious, right? It's so obvious. It's just something that people haven't spent the time to figure out, but when you're sitting at home now and you can't go on tour and you can't play shows and your ad revenue has gone down, you got to figure that out too. So we've actually seen, we've seen folks adopt like new platforms and, you know, jump to stage it and a lot of pre existing sites but then there's also been people who have been leveraging live streaming as a way of getting new patrons. Mm -hmm. So they'll do a live stream. And then on the live stream, they'll say, Hey, if you want more of these, or if you want to support me in general, go to my Patreon and become a patron and you'll get extra live streams and you'll get, you know, extra, uh, you know, newsletter once a month and you'll get some behind the scenes videos and things like that. Um, and that's just been, that's been fantastic to see. We we've got, there's one creator I'm, I'm, uh, quite good friends with. And he was telling me his, uh, his touring globally got canceled and his only revenue at this point was Patreon. And he started doing live streams and sending people to his Patreon page and his, his subscription revenue doubled like over the course of a couple weeks, just because he started doing live streams and sending people to his Patreon page.
0: And then there's the question of how this continues further on, right? So that we're gonna be having this weird hybrid time. We don't know. People listening to this in the future probably go, but we we knew that it was gonna take a year for things. So everyone's kind of in this era of both uncertainty, but now having a direct connection with their fans. How do you see how do you see Patreon being able to change and be supportive of what this transition will be?
1: Yeah, um, like broadly speaking, I think, again, this, this goes back to our first conversation around the creator as a small business, mm-hmm. which is essentially what creators and musicians are. They're, um, they're their own small businesses, except no one's building for them and the infrastructure and tooling for their businesses doesn't exist yet yet and they're their own CEO, and they have to do everything themselves. But it, it really is a small business, and they need everything else a small business needs, including revenue diversification. And I think a lot of creators are learning that firsthand, just like businesses learned it, right? Where they have all their eggs in one revenue line, and then something macroeconomic happens that disturbs that revenue line. And if they had all their eggs in that one basket, it can be big trouble for them. And so whether or not creators, like you know, I've talked to thousands and thousands of creators at this point, not everyone has the kind of business vocabulary. A lot of them do. A lot of them are entrepreneurs and and think like entrepreneurs, but a lot of them don't. But they still deeply understand the concept of diversification and revenue diversification, even if they don't know that vocabulary. They, they understand the importance of it. And they're starting to do that with their businesses, right? So they have some ad revenue, they do some live streams, they do some virtual goods and tipping on live streams, they do super chats, they have a Patreon, they get some Spotify income, they go on tour. Now they have like, you know, 10 or 15 different revenue lines, which is awesome for creators, because it means they're building more robust businesses that are less susceptible to massive fluctuations because of some world event that's completely outside of their control. So um, the way, patreon can play a part in that is you know building this amazing line of of subscription revenue for creators so that they can um you know be diversified and so that they can have a healthy business even if something happens outside of their control
0: so as a creator yourself what's your wish list for what the next year or two looks like because you're largely not touring you're largely now generating a hundred releases a year yeah. What is that, so are you now uh, and we, we started talking about machine. Are you now a machine that just continues forward and connects with your fans virtually or is this are there new businesses that you wish existed?
1: Yeah. So. Um, there are there are always new things that I wish existed. <laughs> um, we we've cut out all touring. You know, obviously, we're not doing any touring. We're not doing any live. We're not planning for any touring. We're not planning for any live. Um And so you know we've had to adjust our creative process one more time because all, for a couple of months it was shelter in place, and so we weren't even allowed to make those trips down to Los Angeles to record in a studio with other people. so we had to transition to completely remote production, which we did um and we came out with a bunch of videos that were just you know people shooting in their bedrooms on their iPhones, and then we cobbled it all together and mixed it, and you know it was it was a thing um uh, I guess like things that I'm that I'm looking forward to over the next couple of years uh, as a creator myself, um, um, maybe a few things. One, I think um, as powerful as creators are now, and they're quite powerful, right? Like advertisers call creators influencers. Like that's how powerful they are. <laughs> um, as powerful as they are now, uh, I think creators are gonna be even more powerful in the future because people are starting to realize that fans go where creators go and you can see it in what's happening. Creators have so much leverage. Creators are getting like huge deals to, to be exclusive on a platform now, like Joe Rogan on Spotify or, you know, whatever it is that like. Or Ninja
0: who's flipped back.
1: (laughs) Ninja. Yeah.
0: (laughs) After being pulled away to mixer and now is flipping. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like that leverage is like, people are starting to get it. And it will, that's gonna just exponentially increase over the next Mm -hmm. few years. And I'm looking forward to that for creators. I'm looking forward to a world where creators are increasingly powerful and finally have, like, finally have voices that are heard and have a say in the ecosystems um, in which they participate. Um, I'm really, I think that's going to be a beautiful, wonderful world for creators where they have leverage for the first time in literally like thousands of years. Um, It's so exciting. I think it's such an exciting time to be a creative person and to be alive right now. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then, and then from a personal standpoint for Pomp Loose and Scary Pockets, um, I think I'm looking forward to, uh, gosh, I, I think I'm looking forward to, you know, 2 years ago if you were to show us a picture of where we are now i i wouldn't have believed it you know I, I wouldn't have believed it like the 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 progress that we've made and how we've grown as artists and how we've leveled up our music and how we've leveled up our our systems and um it's just really fulfilling and exciting and uh and i have no idea what that's going to look like 2 years from now but that I'm looking forward to whatever that feels like and whatever that looks like, and uh, and I'm you know growing the music, growing the growing the video, making it more interesting, more engaging. Um, we're Palmolive is starting exp- experiment with directors and having narrative style music videos instead of just performance music videos, and we're hiring animators now, and we're we're really like making things that are getting better and better and different than we imagined six months ago. And it's just cool to see it kind of blooming and unfolding. So, you know, it's just a kind of a wonderful surprise. So I think that's probably the thing I'm most looking forward to is just continuing to be surprised and excited about how it changes.
0: Well, we're at the end of our conversation, Jack. This has been really charming to speak with you on this. Anything else you'd want to mention before we wrap up? And if someone's going to get a hold of you, what do you need? What do you need people to reach out with?
1: Yeah, maybe the only other thing I'd say just to just wrap up, I kind of just said it, but maybe a a slightly different way is, um, you know, for the first time in history, uh, creators have the ability to say something and, and be heard by lots and lots of people. And I think it's easy to get used to that and to not be enthusiastic about that anymore or to be or to not to not just let that blow our minds, but it blows my mind every day. Like, I I think it's so important to realize, to continuously realize how special that is and how wonderful it is that creative people can reach anybody now. And you don't need somebody in a suit to think you're cool enough to get onto BBC One or BBC Two or BBC Three. You don't need that anymore. Um, You can build your own business. You can make more than a living. You can make, uh, you can build a profitable business and you can hire employees. You can build your dream. Like, these are things that, like, you could not build a small business media company 18, uh, uh, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even. And the fact that, like, creators have access to not only the distribution tools, but the financial tools now and the creation tools. Like, we all have 4K cinema cameras in our pockets it's unbelievable and it's like all the pieces have come into place for creators and I just it's such an exciting time to be a creative person I I think it's really important to just remember that and to not get too used to the baseline you know humans kind of grow accustomed to whatever environment they're in and and uh yeah I I don't want to get used to that because it's just so special and uh, it's such a wonderful time so so that's that and then I guess how to reach me well we can follow Pomplamoose on on YouTube, uh, Scary Pockets on YouTube. You can listen to us on Spotify. Um, we're we're everywhere that you would listen to music. Um, but yeah, that's that's my that's my presence. And then of course Patreon. You can come on to Patreon, become a creator or or uh, or a patron of of your favorite creators.
0: Excellent, Jack. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And there you have it. That is the last episode of Innovating Music. For those of you who've been with us this whole time, thank you for supporting this podcast and our adventures. For all of our guests, thank you for being with us and being part of this program and all sorts of other things that we've been up to. This podcast will be available at the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music website and all your favorite podcast places for a while. Do step across the curb, though, and come find us at Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson also on all your favorite podcast services. Come to find us at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com, and we'd love to have you both sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe on all your favorite services, but also please nominate your favorite creative innovators in music or whatever realm of creativity is your adventure in this world and who inspires you in your world. Thanks for being part of this adventure and continue to listen to innovating music, our old episodes and our new episodes, my new episodes at Creative Innovators. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being part of the adventure, the journey. And hopefully you are innovating in music. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites and you can find those in the show notes.